0: Brutal scenes on the front lines of Ukraine's counteroffensive.
1: The battle itself is just everywhere strewn, it's like including the bodies of Russian soldiers still lying in the field, and their rubbish, and their food, and their clothes.
0: Could reports of infighting among the Russian president's lieutenants be a sign of deep dysfunction?
1: While
2: it doesn't seem to pose any immediate threat to Putin's power itself, some analysts say his failure to quell the squabbles heralds potential shifts in Russia's political scene.
0: And later in the program, Ukraine's first lady was in Israel this week, meeting with experts to learn how to provide support for troops and civilians traumatized by Russia's invasion. Today is Friday, June 23rd. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says there has been fierce fighting along the front lines as forces are advancing in southern Ukraine and holding defensive lines in the eastern part of the country. I spoke with VOA's Heather Murdoch, who has been covering the counteroffensive in eastern Ukraine just as she had returned from the combat zone, starting with what she witnessed.
1: Besides a heavy battle, heavy shelling from both sides, and A tremendous amount of destruction. In the combat zone, we also saw villages that we expected, because Ukraine has taken so much pain and effort to retake these areas from Russia, which occupied them for more than a year. We expected to find something, some part of a town, but what we found was just complete destruction. Um, There's a Ukrainian flag flying over a supermarket in um, one of the towns that are now active combat, but the supermarket is really just a bombed out shell. And then the battle itself is just everywhere strewn, it's like including the bodies of Russian soldiers still lying in the field and their rubbish and their food and their clothes. Um, clearly the battle that was on the ground had moved just a little ways because we could hear the ongoing fighting and see the shelling that was going on. The soldiers that were fighting at that in that exact spot must have left in a huge hurry because they left everything behind. So it makes you wonder when you're looking around like they're they're taking back these villages, but what are they taking back? It's just a disaster zone at this point.
0: Well, how's morale? What is the mood of the Ukrainian soldiers that you could tell from the, those that you spoke to? We spoke to a few soldiers
1: that were combat soldiers working on the front line and had been for a while. They said this battle was generally much harder than other battles they had fought. The combat is closer. They're using weapons like grenades and guns where previously they were mostly using artillery. They say it's quite difficult because. The Russians have been there for a long time, more than a year, and their fortifications are really strong. For example, they say their trenches are very deep. They can entirely cover the men, so they are hard to find and hard to beat. They are, of course, formally optimistic that Ukraine will retake all of its land and be victorious, as you might expect for a national army to say this. But when you get this close to the actual battle and the soldiers are fighting every single day, they talk more about their goals being getting home safe, their friends getting home home safe, maybe one day getting married, having real jobs, and this war ending with a victory for Ukraine and an individual future for them, which, as they say, is in question because this battle right now is incredibly dangerous.
0: And Heather, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Thursday that he believes, according to Ukrainian intelligence, that Russia may be preparing for an attack on Ukraine's nuclear power plant, which is also Europe's largest nuclear facility, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. This is very worrisome. Have you talked to Civilians that have been concerned about it as well. Yes,
1: Um, I'm in Zaporizhia right now, and it is a huge concern here. In fact, they are holding, and we're trying to visit trainings for civilians on how to deal with a nuclear disaster. This country is still deeply impacted by the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. You meet people as young as 21 years old who have health problems that are related to Chernobyl, and that's just beyond, you know, all of the death and destruction that was caused. So Ukrainians do know something about how to deal with a nuclear disaster, but they also know how bad it can be. And people are
0: quite scared. VOA's Heather Murdoch reporting to us from eastern Ukraine. Members of President Zelensky's government late Thursday briefed international representatives on the possible threat to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The potential for life-threatening release of radiation has been a concern since Russian troops invaded Ukraine last year and seized the plant. As for the latest counteroffensive, I spoke with John Gentile, retired U.S. Army colonel and senior historian with the RAND Corporation, for analysis. Ukraine is in its early stages of, of what appears to be its most ambitious counterattack since the full-scale invasion. What do you see from a military perspective about the strategy and how it compares maybe to their initial counteroffensive at the beginning of Russia's invasion?
3: Lori, there's a huge difference. I mean, there's a couple of interesting comparisons. That's one interesting one right there and how they responded and reacted to the initial Russia invasion, you know, starting February 24th, that first month. And then there's also a second interesting comparison, which is their successful counteroffensive in Kharkiv taking back large swaths of territory of Ukrainian land last fall. The big difference between their response to the Russian invasion is that that response seems to have been with a combination of Ukrainian regular forces, but also uh, Ukrainian National Guard, small unit. You remember the video tweets of you know the Russian tank and mechanized infantry column moving into Brovary? I think that was middle March 2022, doing everything exactly wrong tactically as far as the Russian column. I think their response back then was in a lot of ways very decentralized, which it had to be. But then you look at what the Ukrainians have done for the last six, eight months with the help of NATO and uh, NATO countries, the U.S. And they built 9 Brigades that are predominantly mechanized and motorized forces, I think there is a greater you're seeing a greater level of centralization now than you did in response to the reaction to the Russian invasion that first month of the war and then comparing what they're doing and trying to do now compared to what they did in their successful Kharkiv counteroffensive last fall is that counteroffensive last fall did not really use motorized mechanized with armored support types of formations. They did a lot of infiltration with small reconnaissance units and small SUVs, those kind of things, got behind Russian lines, had longer range strike systems like HIMARS and were able to hit Russian supply points, command nodes, those kind of things. And it was infiltration through an already thinned out Russian defensive line, which uh, the Ukrainians clearly had information on from the U.S.
0: Russia still holds large swaths of territory, though, in eastern and southern Ukraine. And they've made a lot of errors in the first year, but they seem better prepared and better equipped in general now. So does that more so even the playing field?
3: Clearly, what we've seen so far in the last couple of weeks, the Ukrainians have made gains, but they're minimal. They're very localized gains, a few villages here and there. I think what they're actually doing is what a U.S. Army Armored Cavalry Regiment used to do for an army core in Europe back in the day, they're doing reconnaissance. They're fighting for information. They're probing, they're understanding the Russian defensive, and I think at some point they're going to make a decision on where, maybe certain spot, multiple spots, to really begin their counteroffensive in force with these nine newly formed motorized mechanized brigades. The Russians certainly have adapted and innovative. Their defensive lines uh, are much stronger now than they were just months ago, and they are definitely formidable, but they're vulnerable for the Russians. It's not clear if they're going to be able to handle a major Ukrainian penetration of those lines somewhere, because like I said, that requires more than just a company of Russian soldiers carrying out a local counterattack to push the Ukrainian force out of a village. If The Ukrainians can make a penetration of 25, 30 kilometers in depth and in width. That means the Russians have to organize a major force to try to deal with that penetration and the other thing the ukrainians have going for them Lori, is if they're able to penetrate and grab significant amounts of new territory that's friendly territory for them
0: and of course there's morale ukrainians are very motivated they want to keep their land keep their sovereignty the
3: ukrainians still clearly it's an existential fight they have a much stronger will to win but that's not invulnerable either Out of this upcoming next two, three month battlefield will determine a lot. And I do still believe that the Ukrainian morale across the board is in much better shape than Russian morale across the board. You can read about Russian morale with the infighting, you know, with the Russian military telegram bloggers. The Russian soldier, I think, deep down knows that he's not fighting for the existence of his country. He's fighting for his political leadership to grab parts of Ukraine that they wanted to Grab from the beginning of this war. It's, it's all very clear that Russian command has a very different acceptance of high numbers of casualties, and they're willing to throw newly acquired conscripts with. It. They're still doing this as reconnaissance forces, and the main purpose is for them to get shot at, and if they get killed, that's okay.
0: How do you see this ending and how long it will go on?
3: I can speculate. From the start of this war, personally, I've been very bullish on the possibilities for Ukrainian success. And I still think they have a reasonably good chance of being successful in this counteroffensive that they're they're starting right now. I mean, there's a number of different outcomes that are entirely in the realm of the possible. One is that this Ukrainian counteroffensive makes some penetrations, gains some new ground, but they're just not able to integrate, combine, control these large number of forces against a formidable Russian defense And it kind of fizzles. That's one possible outcome. Another possible outcome is that the Ukrainians are able to get a little bit more than that, but not much more. And a third possible outcome is that they're actually quite successful and they make penetrations on certain parts of the Russian defensive line, who knows where that is in the south or the east which potentially could cause a shock effect on the Russian defenses that causes serious breaks in defensive lines. And what that leads to, uh, it's hard to know. What I am pretty confident about is that even if this Ukrainian counteroffensive fizzles, the Russians are not going to be able to capitalize on that fizzling. (laughs) I just don't think the Russians have the wherewithal to be able to capitalize by taking new and additional ground or whatever, even if the Ukrainian counter offensive doesn't pan out to be successful.
0: John Gentile, retired U.S. Army colonel and senior historian with the RAND Corporation. Meanwhile, Ukraine's military said early Friday that air raid alerts had been sounded throughout the country. With that part of the story, we hear from Anna Chernikova in Kiev. It
4: was another overnight attack, uh, quite a massive one. According to the official information from the Ukrainian air defense, Russian forces shot Ukraine with uh, 13 Cruise missiles targeting the west part of the country, particularly military airport in Khmelnytsky region, and all thirteen missiles were destroyed in the air. In addition to one intelligence drone that was also targeting Ukraine this night. It's important to mention Khmelnytsky also why Khmelnytsky region and this particular military facility is being under attack. It's not the first time that Khmelnytsky region is actually targeted by Russian missiles, because there are a couple of uh, military facilities there and military infrastructure, which is used by Ukrainian forces. So it looks like that uh, Ukrainian air defense has certain uh, strengths in that area because before X cruise missiles were impossible to shut down. And uh, now we can see that uh, in the West, it's already an option now.
0: And it sounds like there are also some explosions happening in occupied territories.
4: Yes, yesterday, we had an information uh, it was not confirmed officially yet but the raw footage even from the from the satellite images we can see that the bridge next to the entrance to Crimea apparently was damaged it was an explosion we don't have confirmation of what exactly happened but we can see that Panton bridge was constructed in this past 24 hours by russian forces and next to the actual bridge and this is Kherson region we can consider it as Kherson region Also, additionally, explosions and attacks are happening on the occupied territories in Kherson and the Parisia regions, and we're getting also all this information from the Ukrainian authorities in that area. It looks like that this is kind of a part of this bigger and wider counteroffensive, which goes basically in line and it goes together. At least this is how Ukrainian military experts comment on that. And again, as Ukrainian military officials and President Zelensky mentioned that we should expect intensifying of these actions. But when this intensifying would happen and how long will it take? For the moment, no one can confirm. But it looks like it will be quite a long counteroffensive.
0: Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kiev. A joint statement issued Thursday by U.S. President Joe Biden and in Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi said that both leaders have expressed their deep concern over the conflict in Ukraine and mourned its terrible and tragic humanitarian consequences. The statement also said Biden and Modi, who is was in Washington on a state visit, have called for respect for international law, principles of the UN Charter, and territorial integrity and sovereignty in connection with Ukraine. Infighting among Russian President Vladimir Putin's lieutenants seems to be revealing signs of deep dysfunction, Associated Press correspondent Charles de la Desma reports.
2: After spending more than two decades building a rigidly controlled political system, Putin is silently watching increasingly raucous infighting that has emerged among top members of his entourage amid the war in Ukraine. While it doesn't seem to pose any immediate threat to Putin's power itself, some analysts say his failure to quench the squabbles between Yevgeny Prygosin, the maverick head of the Wagner private military contractor and the military brass, heralds potential shifts in Russia's political scene and sets the stage for more internal battles. It has pushed Prigozhin to the forefront of Russia's political scene and has signaled his growing ambitions. I'm Charles Tilladesma.
0: You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. Ukrainian First Lady Olena Zelenska was in Israel this week meeting with Israeli experts in trauma and rehabilitation, seeking support for the country's troops as well as civilians traumatized by the Russian invasion. The Israelis say they have ways to help. Linda Gradstein reports for VOA from Jerusalem.
5: Ukrainian First Lady Olena Zelenska, accompanied by Michal Herzog, wife of Israel's President Isaac Herzog, met with Israeli trauma treatment professionals and said she hopes Ukraine can benefit from Israel's experience. The First Lady of Ukraine echoed the words of Mrs. Herzog, saying Israel, for unfortunate reasons, has unique experience when it comes to trauma and is, in Zelenska's words, still able to survive and thrive under constant enemy attacks. The Ukrainian First Lady went on to say research shows a majority of Ukrainians now have anxiety disorders and post traumatic stress disorder. This, she says, is not limited to the military, but to civilians. And including children who have witnessed the killings of their parents. Since the war started, Israeli trauma organizations have been active in training Ukrainian trauma professionals, both in Israel and Ukraine. Experts say the 4 million Ukrainian children are especially vulnerable and can be helped by Israeli programs aimed at children. Donny Brome directs the Metiv Israel Psychotrauma Center.
2: They really learn all kinds of simple um techniques of how to calm yourself down, how to use your um, breathing in order to feel okay, uh, what to do when sirens go off, knowledge and skills that can help children come out at the other end in a better way.
5: Zelenska got an introduction to the latest rehabilitation technology developed to treat Israeli soldiers and civilians wounded in war. During the last year, Ukrainian soldiers have been brought to Israel to get prostheses and advanced rehabilitation. Michal Herzog said the Jewish state is eager for others to benefit from its expertise.
4: Israel is very proud of its health system, and we are also proud and want to
5: share the knowledge and the uh, great health system um, facilities with people in need. The physical and mental health needs of Ukrainians facing war were the focus of Zelenska's Israel visit. She has invited Israeli professionals to the International Mental Health Summit. She is convening in Kyiv in September. Linda Gradstein for VOA News, Jerusalem.
0: Since the destruction in early June of the Kakhovka Dam in Ukraine, dozens of people have died and thousands were forced to flee their homes. The UN is trying to get humanitarian aid into the affected areas. Andrei Dubchak and Irina Shinkarenko have the story narrated by Anna Rice.
6: This is the reality for the residents of the village of Afanasivka, who are still dealing with the aftermaths of the Kakhovka Dam explosion
1: the wall is
5: all crooked now everything is sinking down and i was trying so hard i had flour over there i have kids you know i would give them flour i would give them food and here we are now everything ruined
6: <laughs> Lyudmila lives in Afanasivka in the Mykolaev region. This is what's left of her house after the Inhulets River overran its banks after the dam was destroyed. Afanasivka is located about 40 kilometers north of the Dnipro River and the city of Kherson. It is an island town situated in the middle of the Inhulets River, which is a tributary of the Dnipro. When the dam was destroyed, the water levels rose along the Inhulets, covering the bridges and stranding the citizens of Afanasiv
5: We took rocks out, took food, took what we could, and those people who live over there, their houses were just underwater. <laughs>
6: And this is the village of Fyodorovka, also on the Inhulets River, but even closer to the Dnipro. Here, more than 60 homes were flooded.
3: The explosion happened on June 6, and on June 7th, it was all underwater, up to the roof.
6: The UN World Food Program volunteer members, unable to reach the isolated town by land, are using boats to cross the Inhulets River to deliver food and water to the residents of Fedorovka.
7: So England's town, which is that way, mm-hmm. um, the closest road access you have to drive three or four hours round trip around to get assistance to them. Uh, over 350 households affected by the flooding.
6: Locals like Alexander are helping deliver groceries to various houses and neighboring villages on the other side of the river.
5: People need
3: help.
7: Here in Fyodorovka, we have help available. But those who live in villages further that way, they do need assistance.
6: Local authorities in the most affected areas are trying to figure out how they can help those who lost their homes. The water destroyed not just living facilities, but vegetable patches that fed many locals throughout the summer. For Irina Shankarenka and Andriy Dubchak
0: in Ukraine, Anna VOA News. A Russian diplomat is squatting on the contested site of a proposed Russian embassy in the Australian capital, Canberra. His move follows Australia's decision this month to block Moscow's plans to build a new embassy near the Australian federal parliament, citing unspecified national security concerns. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports.
7: The unidentified Russian diplomat is occupying the site of the planned new Russian embassy in Canberra without permission. He's being monitored by Australian police, who can't arrest him because he has diplomatic immunity. Australia this month passed a law to prevent Russia from moving its embassy from a Canberra suburb to a site close to federal parliament and the Chinese embassy because of national security concerns. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese hasn't specified what the threats might be. Media reports earlier this year said that Australian intelligence agencies had uncovered a so-called hive of Russian spies who were posing as diplomats. Security chiefs said Australia was facing an unprecedented spy threat, but didn't name the country or countries involved. Albanese told reporters in Canberra Friday that the site was secure, despite the presence of an unauthorised diplomatic squatter. The national security threat that was represented by a Russian embassy on site are not the same as some bloke standing on a blade of grass on the site that we don't see really as a threat to our national security. The Kremlin said that Australia's decision last week to block the construction of a new embassy was yet another unfriendly action that Moscow would take into account in the future. Russia is challenging the decision in Australia's high court. Relations between Canberra and Moscow have deteriorated over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Australia is among the largest non-NATO contributors to Ukraine, supplying missiles and armoured personnel carriers. Since the February 2022 invasion began, Canberra has imposed sanctions on hundreds of Russian politicians, including President Vladimir Putin, military commanders, and business people. They are the most sweeping penalties Australia has ever put on another country. Phil Mercer for VOA News. Sydney.
0: And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world, 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London.
7: This is the voice of
2: America. Washington,
7: D.C.